Radio 3. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm delighted to be joined over the next two programmes by author, historian and journalist Vodin England about her latest book, Fortune's Bazaar, The Making of Hong Kong. It was a decade in the making as Vodin explored the web of family trees and business ties that make up the diverse communities that contributed to the creation of what Hong Kong is today, from around the 1840s and a century on. There are the Jewish families, the Parsis, Armenians, Muslims, Indians, Hakka and other Chinese groups and many others. There are also key people in Hong Kong's history who come under the wide-ranging umbrella term of Eurasian here. Their roots were sometimes intentionally unclear, as often the children and grandchildren came from protected women, a euphemistic term for women from the sex industry who would be kept by often businessmen. These could be British, Parsi, Muslim, often long-term partners, but who rarely married. In Fortune's Bazaar, Vodin England writes a biography of Hong Kong that has been much needed with research into the groups and individuals that created this cosmopolitan hub. A book like this takes years and a kind of level of obsession you sort of ordinarily wouldn't really want to live with. But, you know, these things grow on you over a very, very, very long period. And then you suddenly wake up and realize, oh, you have to do it. So for me, I think we actually have to go back to actually 1979 when I first visited Hong Kong. My parents were living here and they were church people. They used to go to Jordan Road Church in Kowloon and we lived in this sort of empty hillside out in Sha Tin. And they would bring back this extraordinary man from church who I thought was really quite large enough, but mum said, no, 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 we have to feed him up. Um, and of course this was Carl Smith. So I met Carl Smith at, at my family home dinner table when he was dragged home from church and gradually clicked as to what he was really doing, which is incredibly forensic investigative work on the absolute actual factual details of person by person who was in Hong Kong at what point, what they did when they were born, who they married, who were their children, when did they die, what assets did they have. He would do things like sit in the land registry for, honestly, months on end, taking notes. This is pre-internet mm. and his handwriting. I mean, researchers, a generation of researchers would wish that Carl Smith had better handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> we were all very pleased when he got a typewriter. So he would take notes from these records, you know, who owned what. He would take notes from, you remember old-fashioned newspapers would have birth, death and marriage announcements and so on, so he'd follow all that. He would compile every single piece of available information. And the result was these walls of little drawers, just the right size for index cards. And anyone you wanted to know about in Hong Kong pretty well, you could go to Carl and say, so, what do you think? And of course, my first real job with him was Noel Croucher. For when oh, I the was, philanthropist. Yeah. Yes, yeah, well, businessman, curmudgeon, as Jan Morris would say, grumpy old man, <laughs> others might say. But indeed, he's, he left his fortune to establish the Croucher Foundation. Uh, he also left a lot of stories that turn out to be not true. So the first step on anything is to go to Carl. But going back to 1979, my parents and many others were sort of exercised by the fact that Carl 
talk about obsessive, he did all this work, but how was it going to survive and outlast him? And I distinctly remember my mum saying to me at one point, she says, you know, if we don't get all this sorted out before Carl dies, you know what you're going to have to do, don't you? Very much? <laughs> really? What? You're going to have to sort out his index card? Oh, no! <laughs> Just, that's amazing, though, that you know... So you, you knew him as a, a child, a teenager? Well, I just started university, right. so I was uh, not as young as one might have hoped. <laughs> but, yes, I did. And, in fact, even on that first visit to my parents, I had to transcribe some tapes for him. So it's sort of... I guess you have to start it from there. And, of course, meanwhile, I've done decades here or there in sort of mad daily news as a journalist, both in Hong Kong and around the region and then in London with BBC World Service. But I kind of always knew this was sitting here lurking. And of course, doing a book in the beginning in, I think, the mid-90s about, indeed, about Noel Croucher, and you start to realise that Hong Kong is not just made up of, on the one hand, sort of rich British colonialists, and on the other hand, yes. you know, the vast slaving Chinese masses. Of course, these are clichés. And of course, there were just so many other completely different kinds of people. There was poor white trash, like Noel was in the beginning. I mean, a white guy, post office clerk, here in 1905. And then, of course, you start gradually saying, oh, you, you're Portuguese, or do you mean Macanese? And you get into that discussion. Yeah, and there's or, so many different... Um, <laughs> that make up the fabric of Hong Kong. Absolutely. Just a little bit extra on Noel Croucher here. As Vodin says, he started out as a post office clerk in 1905, at the age of 15, after coming to Hong Kong with his family. He moved to a trading company and then a brokerage. In World War I, he was in the mainland recruiting for the Chinese Labour Corps the men who would be sent to France and elsewhere to support the British war effort. In the mid-1930s, Noel Croucher would set up Croucher and Company, and he obtained a seat on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. He became the Vice Commodore of the Royal Hong Kong Yacht Club and served on the Board of Directors of the Hong Kong and China Gas Company and Green Island Cement. During the Japanese military occupation of Hong Kong from December 1941, he was interned in Stanley Civilian Camp, but he managed to keep his wealth intact and was active in the restoration of key institutions in Hong Kong, including the Stock Exchange post-war. In 1979, he would set up the Croucher Foundation, dying a year later in 1980. But what he did leave was a large endowment that the foundation has used to fund educational programs for natural science, technology and medicine in Hong Kong. And then, of course, I finally got over the whole journalism thing and turned to history full-time about 12 years ago, and I was researching Hong Kong land. And what struck me quite dramatically early on is that for the first... You, you think of it as one of the archetypal British Hongs. So, of course, hiding behind all this is, you know, what do we mean, what do we mean by British? <laughs> and in the end, of course, nowadays, you know, when we call Hong Kong a Chinese city, what do we mean by Chinese? So, but I discovered with Hong Kong land that the board of this so-called British Kong, of course, it had one Scotsman, the man from Jardines, whoever that was at the time, but for half a century, I mean, for 50 years, Every other member of the board, and I have really thoroughly checked this, was either Eurasian, Jewish, Armenian, or Parsi. Now, that's what made the kind of companies that made what we know of as Hong Kong. It's extraordinary, I think, also, and it's little told, you know, this whole story of the Parsis, the Armenians, the, uh, the Eurasians. Mm. That 
point you make about it being little told is, is of course, what got me going. I mean, I still had the journalistic juices, and you think, oh, there's just such a fantastic story here. Now, it has been told within families, and we have to pay homage here to Peter Hall, who was the first in the 1980s. He was the company secretary of Hong Kong land, actually. And, of course, he's from a whole long heritage of Eurasian families who really formed the core of the first century of Hong Kong, who are really the sort of inner, hidden, secret core to what we know of as, as, as Hong Kong. He did incredible work, just trying, first of all, to find his own family history. And this is the problem that you come up with when you're starting to talk about Eurasians. I mean, we can come to the definitional issue later, but he had no problem identifying himself as of mixed heritage. But you immediately strike a sticky aunts or uncles or grandma who doesn't want to admit that her mother might have been a sex worker of some kind. Oh, yes. um, and you get into a very... It was just incredibly difficult for Peter to, to trace his family, to get these older relatives to talk. He accumulated fantastic information and he did this book called In the Web. Now, that really was the first... And it had to be privately published because public institutions weren't happy about some of the material he had discovered. I mean, it's a long, complex story. But his book was really pioneering. Apart from his book, there have been some family memoirs. Eric Peter Ho did a great one, My Family's Lineage. Jean Gittins, of course, wrote about being behind barbed wire. Um, and she is? She's from the Ho Tung clan, and she married... Gittins, which was another Eurasian family. I mean, then, then you get into this whole complex thing about names and who who identifies as Chinese or as British and what names do they use. And all of these things also change in the course of somebody's lifetime and certainly over a few generations. Okay, so this brings us to a man called Ron Zimmern, who, in fact, hasn't lived in Hong Kong since he was about seven when he went to school in England. But he is the direct grandson of Sir Robert Copewell, who was the first Eurasian to be appointed to LegCo, the Legislative Council, and then the Executive Council in the 1930s. So Ron got interested in the history of his own family, and then, of course, of the wider Eurasian community. And he thought, why has nobody written yes. more about it? So it was this whole thing of this hasn't been covered. And Ron himself is a, is a very academic, you know, he's a medical and legal scholar. And he said, we really need to have new research about Hong Kong's human social history. I told him about Carl Smith, I told him about Peter Hall, you know, I got him reading things. One of the most important things to come out of this is that Ron is behind what is now called the Hong Kong History Centre, which is based at Bristol University in Britain. It brings over several bright young Hong Kongers to do PhDs on marvellously obscure but often quite interesting and definitely important aspects of Hong Kong history. And they're supported to do this under the History Department of Bristol University, where there is now a totally dedicated centre for Hong Kong history. There is a growing archive. Anybody listening to this who has stuff and they don't know where to put it, please think of the Hong Kong History Centre at Bristol University. Runs the man behind all that. And meanwhile, he's saying to me, voting, it's time you did this, you know, to sort of put this stuff together. So, you know, way back I had my mum telling me. And then, of course, so in a way, this is all really, first of all, channeling Carl Smith. And then 
quite humbly and with a sort of sense of terror, I think, do I really have to go into all these family trees? I mean, it's a nightmare. Peter Hall, who was of that world, had enough trouble. And, and it does get hugely complex, and I'm quite sure there are going to be people who want to dispute this or that. And I think we have to see this as a starting point, a book like this. So the point of it is that it hopefully is serious scholarly research. I mean, I have spent at least a decade on this <laughs> in between other things. And there are, of course, far too many footnotes. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, hopefully, the point was to also make it reach a wider audience so that yeah. it needs to be solid, but it needs to be readable so that more people in Hong Kong start to appreciate this incredibly rich and varied and diverse and colorful history that goes into making what Hong Kong really is. So was, if, that, if that works, I'll be really happy. And then hopefully other people will pick up this baton, do more research, tell us more, correct me where I'm wrong, but, you know, sort of go with it. I'm talking with Vodine England, the author of Fortune's Bazaar, The Making of Hong Kong, which really does look at all the different communities that have been a part of the fabric of Hong Kong, the growing of business, reclamation. There are so many things that stem from Portuguese, Armenian, Parsi, Eurasian, so many different uh, communities over the past mm, 170 years easy. So as you say, you start from Carl Smith's cards. And I remember I interviewed Carl Smith back in 98. It's the only time I met him. And uh, we were actually standing in front of his <laughs> index, drawers of index cards. Yes. Oh, you know, I still dream. I want a wall like that you know, <laughs> in, uh, in my own home. And I get sort of excited about drawers with index. Cards. And I guess, I guess it sort of goes back to that. And by the way, they are all now scanned and digitized and accessible through the Library of Congress, through the Library of the Royal Asiatic Society, which is lodged, I think it's on the eighth floor of the Central Library in Causeway Bay. And there's also a route in, of course, through the public records office in Hong Kong. So the idea was, yeah. I mean, just very briefly, he, he looked at newspaper, he looked mm. at sort of will and testaments, mm. he looked at all sorts of things mm. to, to show yes, birth, I mean, deaths, everything. The way he explains it, I mean, he, he, he was always a genealogist, and so it's partly this idea, you know, lots of people do history in their own ways, and of course, super sort of academic professors of history like to delve into grand theories and write sweeping books and so forth. Carl's approach is very much, who are these people? You know, how did they actually live day to day? What did they do? How did they meet? So a very sort of close-up, indeed genealogical approach to wider history. And, and you can see the result of this, you get incredible insights just by sort of really tracking, okay, so there's this woman, it's a Chinese name, she's listed of course, in the British records, they felt the need to do this sort of thing then as a single woman. And it turns out she owns a particular property that today is worth <laughs> more than millions, say, on the corner of Peel Street and Hollywood Road. How did she, how did she in the 1850s, 1850s, manage to get this property? So you start with that from the land registry. And so Carl would follow these little trails and discover that... Well, she was 
what is euphemistically called a protected woman. Which and is? She was the mistress, probably not, we, we often think only of Guaylos, but that's not true. Parsi gentlemen had Chinese women who they maintained in an apartment of their own. I mean, you might say as a sort of high-class mistress and protected, I guess, I'm not actually sure about this. I guess it means they're protected from having to go and work in a brothel. <laughs> they might have started in one, but or they may never have needed to, but they are basically this man's woman. And it was, a, of course, incredibly normal standard arrangement. Some of the women who Carl Smith found and who I have written about had more than one foreign businessman protecting her. And of course, it's extremely difficult to track, you know, what all at once or you know, one <laughs> after the other. And, you know, this is when things get really complicated because you're also not dealing with marriage records with this. But then what would often happen with the foreign businessmen, you know, they'd be here for who knows, 5, 10, 15 years or whatever. And sometimes these relationships were genuine relationships. Yes, that's the sense I got yeah. from your book as well, yes. I mean, I'm probably an old romantic, but <laughs> sometimes it kind of feels as if they are real... I mean, it seems like the, at least the guy cared for the woman sometimes. Not, of course, always, and there's a whole long history of foreign businessmen coming in, using a woman in this way, and then just dumping her. And um, the children. And the children, more to the point, which could explain some of the uh, later heroes. So Robert Ho-Tung, he had quite an anger about the fact that his foreign Dutch Jewish father had just dumped his mum and all the children without any care. So the interesting cases are when the man does care he leaves property in the woman's name. He makes some provision for the children. It has happened. And a lot of those children, and they're the products of their unions when they intermarried with others, perhaps similar or even more diverse backgrounds, what you end up with is the elite of late 19th century Hong Kong, a very interesting group of people. Well, this is where we go behind closed doors. Well, indeed, you know, there has long been this idea of Hong Kong, well, lots of different ideas of Hong Kong history, but one of the sort of popular ideas for quite a while was that, you know, you had the British over here in one corner and you had the Chinese over there and they were sort of, it was a tale of two cities, remember? And, and it worked because everyone just sort of let each other get along on their own, in their own separate communities. Where, was it where East meets West? Well, you know, it just met in the marketplace and that's all that happened. But of course, what, what you actually find when, you, when you're really going into it, well, I mean, to be really blunt, these two separate communities, so-called, were in fact sleeping together most nights. And in fact, the products of those relationships were then, of course, quite active in all sorts of directions as well. So, I mean, if you extend the word marketplace to include the bedroom, which of course it often did, you could maybe still hold to that old theory that they only met in the marketplace. But of course, that was just about everywhere, wasn't it? So there was a lot more meeting and mixing going on. And then, in fact, that was my sort of working title on this project for a very long time. You know, Hong Kong dash the mixing that made it. Of course, you know, it sounds like a cocktail. <laughs> Well, that was one complaint. Another thought it was just sort of not going to sort of work in the shops like that. Yes. But, well, it is a cocktail, isn't it? Yes. So we get into really interesting stories once you indeed do sort of go behind closed doors and really get into the bedrooms of people of the 1850s and 60s and 70s. There's this famous English character, well, some would even dispute whether he's English, Daniel Caldwell, hugely controversial character in early Hong Kong. The historian Christopher Ma, 
son has really studied and sort of nailed the life and history and meaning of Daniel Caldwell as a really interesting character in early Hong Kong history. He was born on St. Helena of so-called British stock, but of course he'd never actually lived in Britain. So the sort of non-British person of various roots who had spent his entire life in various colonies, as a result, fluent in all the languages needed in early Hong Kong if you were going to be an interpreter in the courts. So that did not just mean English and, for example, Cantonese. No, it meant Hindustani. It meant Malay, it meant Hokkien, it meant all sorts of other Gujarati to involve people coming from the west side of India. And he knew all these different languages and so he was an incredibly important person. There's a whole lot more to the Caldwell story, which frankly should be another book. <laughs> a lot of my characters in this yes. book, you know, I end up calling them my people just because I spent so long with them. They could, each of them, be a book on their own. So of course that's a scary thing that I'm skipping too lightly over too many names. Hopefully, the readers will sort of bear with me and be as excited as I was to discover people like Emmanuel Belilios. I mean, when we think of early Jews of Hong Kong, of course, we think of the Sassoons and then we get to the Kaduris and, you know, we get to the synagogue, which has a brilliant sort of Jewish historical society and a library to this day. I mean, that, that's a brilliant institution. But one man often sort of forgotten is this Belilios guy, who I find just fascinating. He's originally his family, his roots lie in Venice. He's Sephardic Jewish, but his father turned up in Calcutta. So Belilios himself, my our guy, was born in Calcutta. And he came to Hong Kong, of course, as an opium trader. And he had left his Jewish wife behind in Calcutta. And of course, when he was here, he hooked up with a very delightful Chinese woman with whom he had and made a, a very interesting family. And it gets more complicated because at one point the Jewish wife also comes to Hong Kong and so you're running parallel families. Now, this sounds all sort of exciting and exotic, but what I increasingly discovered, I mean, you could reel off all sorts of so-called extremely respectable names of early Hong Kong and they were all doing it. It was entirely normal. And it was not something that affected the men's careers. So Belilios, you know, he was on the board of the bank, he was a member of LegCo and Exco, he was honoured by the British government, he was entirely respectable and he was running parallel families. That's sort of one point I find really important. And another point I find just as interesting is that through those connections, and I have to turn the page there because there are so many names, I mean... <laughs> um, so intermarriage, right? So he, he has this relationship with a Chinese woman and often, sorry, I'm going to digress here. It gets really frustrating and, and often upsetting that you can never trace the woman mm -hmm. properly. I mean, of course, a lot of them were illiterate. They weren't actually keeping diaries. I wish, imagine if some of these women had kept notes <laughs> on what they thought of these guilos they were dealing with by the day. Um, I mean, it would be a marvelous resource and it would, but more seriously, you know, we don't know enough about the lives of these women. We often don't even know their names. And yes, or, it's more of this disappearing women, isn't it, oh, in history? Gosh. Yes. Yeah, and, and they obviously played incredibly important roles. There's another... You wonder about the influence as well. Well, huge, because these women, they knew they weren't educated. They made 
damn sure that their children were. And from there, that's why they became leaders of Hong Kong society, the offspring of these unions. They went through what is a whole another story and another book. <laughs> the schooling system in early Hong Kong was constructed to take in at least the boys, of course the girls are another issue, but at least the boys that were products of these complex multicultural, multi-faith unions. And so the boys were brought up bilingual in the widest possible sense of the word, not just talking about language, but culture. They were culturally bilingual. And so no wonder they were absolutely central and vital to the making of Hong Kong. They are this sort of in-between channel of, of knowledge and experience and, and personality that makes this place. So just the woman with whom Belilios had a relationship and their children ties you into just about every major family clan of the late 19th century. So you have the Lamb family, the Tysons, they have various other names as well, the Herd family. You know, there was this early trading company in Canton that came to Hong Kong. It was one of the really very top companies. Augustine. So from America? Yes, it was. And of course, nowadays, descendants such as George Cawthorley is very proud to be able to trace his heritage back and claim a share of this Eurasian heritage because the men of the, that time all had these different relationships and the products all intermarried. I may have said that enough now. Um, <laughs> so you have all these different family names interconnecting. You have Lamb, Tyson, Hurd, Lobo, Overbeck, Coatwell, Hotum, Bertaglio. I mean, that's just some of them. The list could go on and it would be sort of increasingly unreadable. And part of this is, and again, thanks to Carl Smith, there were four sisters, the Lamb sisters. Now, the first two were twins. Imagine what a horror this is for record keepers. They're called Lamb Cufong and Lamb Fongcu. Now, Unsurprisingly, it was quite muddled for quite some time, and each of these first two Lamb sisters had more than one foreign trader protector. And from those liaisons, and then a, a third Lamb sister also was a protected woman. Uh, I mean, I'll spare you all the detail, but you get into you know ownership of, of blocks of what we now call Soho in Hong Kong. Yes. I mean, these women did very well. And that's another sort of story I would love to get into more because on the one hand of course you know you never want to have to sleep with people you don't want to sleep with um and these women surely had to there wasn't a whole lot of choice i mean poverty forces you into all sorts of situations where it's not a matter of choice you are in the sex industry there was no other option at the same time the smart ones could make something of it they could bring up children who would become seriously influential wealthy, important segments of Hong Kong society. And they could also increase their own personal wealth quite significantly if they were smart. And these Lamb sisters are certainly in that category. Mm. It's amazing to be able to also track the properties, as you say, because mm. um, that then does start putting them on the map, surely. Well, literally, yes. And in fact, there's this marvellous, hard-to-find article by Carl Smith, and it includes these lovely little hand-drawn maps that he's done of all those streets. You know, you go up Lindhurst Terrace, right on Hollywood, up 
peel or organ and down to gauge and along to Gulf Street and Aberdeen Guy and you know that whole world to me, I now realise, much though I loved researching and writing about things like the Hong Kong Club, I ended up almost feeling sorry for these sort of little pockets of British people who had no idea <laughs> of this really colourful, interesting, heaving world just up the streets and around the corner in that neighbourhood just to the west of Central. And that's where a lot of this happened. And it's also not just this so far this kind of standard notion of how these liaisons began. So fascinating to hear about the individuals and communities that have made up what Hong Kong is today and were so key in that first hundred years. Also lovely to have the Reverend Carl Smith remembered and honoured for his research that has helped any number of history writers. I've been talking with Vodi in England about her latest book, Fortune's Bazaar, The Making of Hong Kong. It's also so important that women's history is more researched and highlighted in Hong Kong. Women such as the Lamb Sisters. Next week, Bodine continues with her accounts of the communities in Hong Kong, including the Eurasians, who weren't always the expected British businessman and Chinese protected woman model. Also, as she points out next week, Hong Kong's establishments and its churches weren't always as sniffy about these liaisons as one might expect. Next week, we also hear about some of the key Hong Kong families who risked their lives during the Japanese military occupation and also helped to rebuild Hong Kong afterwards. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs> ¶¶